Good afternoon, and welcome to the Sitka Nature Show. This is your host, Matt. I want to thank you for joining me here in the last weekend of March 2022. Now, into the lighter half of the year, we are past the spring equinox. It is well into herring season. I don't haven't heard of any spawning uh, as of Saturday, but... Um, no doubt there will be some spawning soon. Lots of activity out there on the waters of the sound. If you're getting out, I'd love to hear what you're seeing out there. Please feel free to send me an email, sitkanature at gmail.com, or you can get on Facebook and like the Sitka Nature page there. The conversation I have for this week's show is one I recorded a few days ago with Jim Bastel. I have previously had him on to speak about geology and hopefully will again in the future, but this conversation focused on Sitka black-tailed deer, some of the research and what's known about them, as well as some of the work that he's been doing lately as part of the Mule Deer Foundation, looking to set up chapters here in Southeast Alaska and looking to assist in habitat restoration for Sitka black-tailed deer. We'll go ahead and join the conversation with Jim sharing a little bit about the new roles he's taken on with the Mule Deer Foundation. I am now taking a role because I guess I couldn't just stay quietly in retirement. Taking a role as the uh, Alaska Regional Coordinator for the Mule Deer Foundation. A two-level role, both as a conservation contact for all of Alaska, and as a regional director for getting different chapters and stuff like that established where people can help to raise funds to put dollars on the ground for habitat uh, for Sika Blacktail. So I started last October. I'm new in this thing. I'm trying to learn what that role is and learn where I can get involved with both state and federal and private entities that want to do work for Sika Blacktail Habitat. Nice. I know you've been involved with the, I guess it's, you call it the Sitka Blacktail Deer Coalition, uh, sitkablacktail.org website, just kind of working with researchers and, and seems like born out of your, your love for hunting and your love for the, the, uh, the blacktail deer. Yeah. So 2008. I went online and found out that sickablacktail.org had not been taken. And so I acquired sickablacktail.org and it took a while to get off. And somewhere in the mid, uh, like 2011, 2012, working with Dr. Sophie Gilbert and uh, Todd Brinkman up at Fairbanks, uh, we came up and I said, look, there is, there is no place you can go find information on sickablacktail. There's a lot of, no place that anybody could go and and read the research that's going on and, and see the issues that are out there and stuff like that. And what's the transplant history and what's the paleontological history and what do we know about these deer from a science perspective? And so that's what we tried to pull together at uh, sickablacktail.org. Um, before that, I had worked with the Forest Service as a representative for the Tongass National Forest with the Mule Deer Foundation starting back in 2007, 8, and 9, going down to the big expo that they have in Salt Lake, getting people to understand that the Sitka blacktail, what the Sitka blacktail deer and their environment and what their habitat needs were on that landscape. Um, the uh, We have... Uh, at that time had tried to get uh, the Builder Foundation 
to get involved in Alaska. Um, the, the, the mission of the Mule Deer Foundation has always been to ensure the conservation of mule deer, black-tailed deer in their habitat. And not that it hadn't recognized black-tailed deer, the organization had not focused on black-tailed deer. And I kept stirring that pot saying like, you know, you need to focus on some of the issues and stuff like that that's starting to evolve and at that time, as our second growth was aging and the whole thing with predators and and subsistence and hunting and the issues around Sitka Blacktail in Southeast Alaska. Recently, uh, the Bielder Foundation got a new CEO, Joel Pedersen. And uh, when Joel come online, he goes, you know, it says that we will ensure the conservation of black-tailed deer. What are we doing for black-tailed deer? And so that was a major focus to bring black-tailed deer, which is a subspecies of mule deer, into focus in under the Mule Deer Foundation uh, main mission. And so there's been a huge effort came out of the organization in the last year and a half um, they partnered with Leopold Stevens. Um, they held a deer summit, a mule deer summit or a black tail summit in, uh, at the, uh, uh, Leopold office down there in the main headquarters in April of last year that looked at issues from Alaska to Canada to Washington, Oregon, and Northern California across both Columbia and Sitka black tail deer. And mainly, they're this, habitat is the number one thing. And, and, and as these older timber harvest stands mature, the light is starved from the forest floor, and there's virtually nothing for them to eat. There's only mosses and lichens and, and things like that in there. So they're dark forests. They're great thermal cover, but there's no food. And so what can we do to to improve that habitat, which will put more deer back on the landscape. And so Steve Belinda, the lead conservation officer for the Beale Deer Foundation, which I've known since the mid 2000s, gave me a call and he said, now's your chance. And he said, we need a, somebody in Alaska to lead the charge. And so I said, I'll ride that horse for a couple of years. Let's take off and see where it goes. Nice to cut you right at retirement and uh, needing something to do. <laughs> I don't necessarily think it was needing something to do. It's the fact that I really do care about these deer and the passion for these deers, deer and seeing what we can do to improve their lot in life, basically, and, and improve their numbers on that landscape. Yeah. Well, and it seems like Prince of Wales has been uh, – more heavily impacted uh, than like the area right around Sitka has been is a lot more roads and um, a lot more, uh, you know, cutting off of those roads, which people have access to in different ways. Not that there hasn't been plenty of cutting around Sitka, but um, not quite at the same scale. So it's, and plus then there's wolves down there as well, I suppose, which, which is another factor that we don't have here uh, right in Sitka. So it's interesting to just consider how the, the, you know, this not that far away spatially, but but some significant difference perhaps in, in what the deer need. And I don't know, is it 
do do you have issues with winter kill there? Because I think on Bernoff and Chichikov, it's it's like winter winter rules all in terms of deer survival. The effects of winter on uh, all of Unit Two, which is Prince of Wales and the surrounding islands, uh, definitely increases towards the center of the island and towards the northern portions of the island. Where there's a line somewhere about Kaufman Cove to Nockety, we're north of that up in the Whale Pass area. Port Protection Point Baker and that kind of stuff that winter can really hammer the deer populations and force them down to lower elevations and persist for long, long periods of time. Um, as you move south and west on Prince of Wales Island, basically winters lessen. And when you get to the outermost islands and things like that, not that we can't have bad winters and stuff, but the effects of those winter on the deer population is much less. Um, it's a really complex issue of changes in habitat through time. Uh, the whole issue with predator-prey relationship, both with what happened with bears through time and what is happening with wolves currently down here. And uh, all of that blends together to where, in my personal experience in 35 years, that I believe the deer population is at least 50% of what it was in the 90s. And so there's been a huge reduction in the number of deer on the landscape due to many different aspects of habitat change and predation. And uh, that's where I'm hoping that the focus of the Mule Deer Foundation working with the Forest Service and, and state and private landowners might be able to go in and do some habitat treatments in there to increase the forage but still allow for deer to move on the landscape during the winters. Winters are the definite limiting thing. The winters are basically controlled by the Pacific Decadal Oscillation, the El Nino, La Nina fluctuations. And when we get into a really bad La Nina winter, that's when our deer really suffer. And uh, how that has changed through time has has. has when I first got here, we'd always have snows in the end of October, the first part of November. And by March, they were pretty much done. And now that's shifted to November and December. And we may very well have a snow in March where basically black-tailed deer manage starvation all winter long. And a little bit longer winter, a little bit longer persistence of snow on the landscape and we make a huge impact on the number of deer that are out there yeah i remember it's been a few years talking to since i talked to him but todd brinkman i, I spoke with him he'd come and given a talk here i think at the time he had, he was looking at they were doing some uh pellet transects with I, I believe they were using dna to be able to identify the individual deer and comparing you know what they were finding with people's experience uh, and and noting how the changes in, you know, the 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 growth of second growth and the shrubs and and the visibility of deer was shifting over time. But the thing that I remember him also commenting on was the black bears 
figured out they could walk along the road edges and find fawns. And that uh, had become a significant source of predation. And I don't know if, if black bears are able to get adult deer or not, if that's something that any of them focus on. I don't I've been really fortunate over the last 25 years that I worked with a myriad of different researchers, both I've put, oh, I don't know, somewhere well over a hundred collars on deer through time, uh, working with Dr. Sophie Gilbert, uh, Todd on the landscape, uh, people that came before him, Dave Persons out here, uh, Amy Russell, folks that were working from the early 2000s to the present. And I've also got an opportunity uh, in concourse with Forest Service biologists and stuff like that to uh, follow those deer all winter long. Mainly, Sophie would start the winter out with 50 fawns and, and I think 20 does. And we would monitor those all winter long when she went back up to college so that if we got a mortality signal, we tried to get in there, snowshoe in and find out why they died within 48 hours of their death so that we could actually determine that they die of malnutrition, where they killed, you know, those, those kind of things before they were scavenged. Uh, so this is, as far as the bear predation goes, there's two things, two or three different aspects that happened on there. During the, the uh, on Prince of Wales Island, the number of black bears that were harvested went from about 70 to close to 500 annually. And, Basically, by about 2007, 2008, along in there, pretty much off of the roaded systems on Prince of Wales Island, a lot of the black bears were shot out and the population crashed. And they went to a registration hunt for black bears at that time, where now it's a draw hunt. And so they've changed their management strategy, and it's really working on bringing that population back up. But out of three different studies that were done out here on Prince of Wales um, and concluding with Sophie's uh, study in, from 2010 to 2012, basically black bears take 50% of the fawns in the first two weeks of a fawn's life. So right there, uh, they have they are really good at keying in. Now there was greater survival when the bear populations were much lower due to over harvest of the bears, but now that bear population is starting to increase uh, at the same time that the deer population is not. And so, right off the gate, every year, fifty percent of the funds, roughly, are taken by black bears within the first two weeks of that fawn's life. One of the really fascinating things that we learned about Seneca Blacktail that we didn't know was getting entire family groups where we had a mother and a set of twins is she would bed those twins several hundred yards apart, kind of using something often a barrier like a road or a creek or a ridge or something to separate those. And they would, she would then feed in between and go and nurse those until their first two weeks of life where they could keep up with mom, would she bring it back together? So if she lost a fawn, she'd only lose one. So there was an adaptation in the way that she reared those youngs on the landscape based on the impacts of black bear. So that was a, that was a fun thing to learn. Um, so as the bears now are recovering in their population, 
uh, I'm sure that there's more predation going on by those black bears than had been over the last maybe 10, 12 years when bear populations were much lower. Mm. Are there are there black bears on Doll Island as well? All of the islands, I think, well, there might be like Forrester probably doesn't have any black bears in there. Has been questionable sightings on Coronation. But other than that, there's black bears everywhere. They swim so easily back and forth. I've, I've frequently found them swimming between islands. And one of the strategies are on a lot of these little teeny, teeny, like less than an acre islands, often a doe will go out there to have her fawns where the uh, probability of predation is less. So you'll see uh, does as they're as they're getting ready to fawn swimming out to these really remote, very small forested islands where they rear their young out there and get them for their first two weeks of their life before it so that the fawns could keep up with them. Yeah, that seems seems like they're figuring ways out to to increase their their chances of survival uh, in the face of predation and are wolves significant predators on on deer during fawning or, or other parts of their life i mean because wolves are unlike bears wolves aren't going to hibernate in the winter so i would imagine the deer could be fairly vulnerable in the winter time when they they slow down a bit one thing uh before i take off on the wolves in the early 2000s when we were putting all the radio telemetry collars on we were going out almost daily and calling and trying, you know, get two or three deer a day kind of a thing until we had over a hundred deer on, on VHF collar. And the wolf, the black bear numbers in the early 2000s were really high. There wasn't a single day using a fawn distress call that, that I was bringing the does in. There wasn't a single day that I didn't have a black bear come running to that call. So they were really keying in on on that. So we were right in that same time, just post fawning, so that we were bringing the mothers in, so that we could we could dart them, put a radio collar on, and boy, I'll tell you what, the black bears do that call. And there was several very fascinating close encounters of the black bear kind in relationship to that. Uh the wolf issue is incredibly complex. Uh, you know, we never we never took wolves out of the the uh, equation here in southeast Alaska, so we didn't have to put them back. So it's not the situation that there is down south where they're reintroducing wolves into places that they haven't been for centuries. Um, wolf harvest has fluctuated throughout southeast Alaska, uh, mainly being somewhere near in Unit two, at least somewhere near about a hundred wolves per year that were taken by trappers and hunters and those kind of things. Um, Alaska Department of Fish and Game right now is walking a very fine line. It's a very hard line for them to be in, and, and that there's been an uh, attempt to list the wolves in Unit two, and uh, so. They don't want to over harvest and they're doing they're doing all they can to try to predict how many wolves are on that landscape using hairboards and 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 other camera traps and stuff like that and other methods across that landscape to come up with 
just how many wolves are there and what is a reasonable amount that uh, both subsistence and trappers could take on that landscape. And they try to set that upper limit and make sure that they're not over harvesting that in the fact that there's still this pending uh, evaluation of that listing out there and in, in, in kind of sitting in the back out there kind of cooking a log. And so that typically the number of wolves that are being taken now are less than it has been historically. So the wolf numbers appear to be increasing. Uh, and so the impacts on the deer herd from that are also increasing as a result of those changes in that kind of a population dynamics. I think the other part that's really driving this is as the older young growth or second growth ages, and we really lose that as habitat, the fragmented old growth and other habitat that's out there along the margins of those timber or harvested blocks and in between those valleys and stuff is where the deer is on the landscape. So you have a smaller percentage of the landscape that the deer are basically still in. Well, that's where all the predators go as well. And that's where you and I would go to hunt. Um, there's a, I have a lot of, indication from trail cameras that I'm running that when wolves appear on the landscape also that the deer tend to go nocturnal. So if you and I go out on the landscape, we find all kinds of bear sign now and we find all kinds of wolf sign now or and or sea wolves in those smaller areas. The we don't see as many deer because on the landscape because their habits have changed to be more nocturnal. So the perception is that there's no deer there. And for the very first time last year, I'm hearing a lot of people saying that they did not get the deer that they needed to fill their freezers. And uh, the whole predator-prey relationship, the whole listing of the Alexander Archipelago wolf in Unit 2, and all of these things kind of blend together into the situation we're in right now on that landscape. And the, the only thing that can really be changed immediately is whether what happens with the listing of that and what type of, of uh, predator trapping and hunting that we're allowed to do on the island. Or we've got like 300,000 acres of stem exclusion phase second growth out there that we can go in and, and try to do some work to improve that so that it has forage. And that's where the Mule Deer Foundation comes in. And the fact that hopefully we can help the Forest Service and other entities on the landscape, both the state and private, do those kind of habitat improvements to put more deer there where the deer aren't today because there's no food. Mm. And that's what I hope to facilitate. Yeah, it's it's interesting that you mentioned them going nocturnal when the predators are there. I remember my son talking about, he had trail cams up and and uh, was there's a 
our Indian River Valley here where it gets once the season opens, especially I think once does open, uh, the there's a fair number of people that go hunting there because it's it's accessible. It's one of, you don't need a boat to get there and um a lot of open and there's a lot of deer in that forest. I don't know how many come out of there. Probably quite a few uh come out of there to hunters but he commented that that uh, it seemed like the deer disappeared like very shortly after <laughs> the start of hunting season uh and i kind of wonder if that it was it's not that they disappear entirely it's that they just shift their habits to be nocturnal to avoid uh avoid the hunting pressure uh they figure that out pretty quickly i imagine for five years i've had cameras in a valley that's way back in where there's not a lot of hunting pressure because I wanted to see what happened. And really the cool thing was the first year I put them in there, there was no wolves in that valley. And so I got one really good rut cycle that shows all of this deer movement and how the, how the peak of the movement was and movement in daylight versus movement in dark. There was still more movement in dark, but there was a large number of movement during the daylight. And, even what I call mature bucks, what I'm estimating to be uh, three to four-year-olds or older males, were moving in the daylight. And so you actually, as a hunter, had an opportunity to encounter that animal during a very short period of time when the rut was most intent from like November 7th through about November 17th, somewhere right in there. January, after that rut cycle, wolves moved into the valley. And there was six or seven wolves that were in the valley. The next rut cycle, the rut happened with the same, roughly the same timing and frequency. But I think that I, I can't remember looking at, I don't have my uh, chart up in front of me. I think I, in the whole period of the peak of the rut, that there was only two mature bucks that were ever out in the daylight. And there was all of this huge mass movement right up to daylight and immediately post sunset. And like, there was no movement, like <laughs> virtually hardly anything, a few spikes and pork and orange running around, but boy, I tell you what, they just shut down the next year. The wolves weren't there they were kind of on like a three or four week rotation. And so they weren't present in the valley at all times. And the deer started to get back to kind of a normal movement cycle back in that valley. And, uh, you know, it's, it's one valley. It's one person kind of taking a look at, at how the deer are moving on the landscape. It's not a scientific study by any shape or means, but, Boy, I tell you what, what I found on my cameras mimicked my experience being back in there during hunting season. Yeah, it's it's fascinating what you can learn with with trail cams. And if, if folks are so inclined to, you know, trail cams these days are pretty reliable, not not too expensive. Uh, if folks were inclined to try and and do a little bit of of learning of themselves, you know, exploring, investigating the, the habits of the deer um near where they live like do you have recommendations for for you know what sorts of things to think about when you're choosing placements and and uh trying to understand 
in, in a broader sense, how the deer are moving, how the deer are behaving. Presumably it's helpful to have more than just one camera, for example. So what I did is I, I, I started out putting cameras out there trying to pick areas that I knew animals were crossing and stuff. And what really changed mine is I went in after a good snow. And so if you go out on the landscape, there's a hundred deer trails at any given piece of property. If you go out there during the snow, there's only like three or four of those that they're really using. So there's, there's primary paths that deer are utilizing and you can see those, of course, once it snows on the ground. And so what I did is I GPSed all of those main trails. And I found nodes where they all came together, pinch points. And I started putting cameras at those pinch points. Then I started looking, Sophie and I was looking at deer movement in leaf strips. So you'd have a large clear cut on both sides of a strip of non-harvested old growth that the deer were really moving in that non-harvested old growth because they pre-commercially thin the two units next to their next to this thing and so there was such a slash load in there that you couldn't walk through that with a d8 cat and so the deer were confined to these corridors and so we go in there and ran, try to randomly pick a major trail. And there's in each one of those corridors, there's a major trail on both sides on the margins. And there's two or three major trails in the center. And so I'd get up away from a road or something, go in far enough up there. And again, I would try to do that in the snow when I could hit a couple places where trails all coalesce together. And I started getting up in so these... What, how were the deer moving in these in these uh, blocks? So I had cameras down below on a big alluvial fan, and then I had cameras up in the forest up above, and then some of the muskegs down below. And at a few places where I knew there was all kinds of rubs, like a signpost. I had an idea in my brain, my working hypothesis was, as, as the deer kind of moved around on the landscape and they were utilizing it, but the vertical movement was in the spring they kind of followed the snow melt up and then in the winter when the snow got deep enough they followed the snow melt down well that was anything from what we found what we found was the vertical movement daily was incredible now, i'm not talking about bucks mainly but does and their fawns they're bedding up there high on the hills and they're coming down in that lower stuff along all the edges of that complex muskeg habitat down there to forage and then moving back up to bed during the day daily vertical movements of eight nine hundred feet were nothing to, i mean that was pretty common which i had no idea that was going on once the rut starts kicking in then you start seeing daily movements of the younger bucks basically forked horns and spikes and that small three points and the bucks that think that they're dominant, but they're not, they're bedding up high and they're coming down and they're checking those does for receptive does. And I might find one buck that I can recognize because of his antlers on 12 different cameras or something like that, where they really cruise during the night, like over a mile is nothing for them to cruise. They may actually, I've had in the past, like 
circuits where they must have been going three miles or four miles in an evening and doing that night after night after night. Then they kind of get locked down once the first does go into estrus. But you, then you have the subdominant bucks that are running around going like, I want to, I would like to be in on this mating game too, even though the then dominant bucks of the landscape are locked down with that doe. And they'll stay with it until they get, until they're successful in mating or get run off by another buck. Then somewhere, December 16th, 17th, 18th for Prince of Wales Island, these giants show up like bucks that, I have not seen all year long, all of a sudden, these super dominant bucks come down to just make sure that everything got bred. So I think they've been really active up at higher elevations with the deer and the population that don't move vertically. And then somewhere in there, once they've done with most of their mating up in that, they come down on and check out the entire landscape. And again, I will have them on multiple, multiple cameras over about a five night period and then they just vanish. This is all predicated by what the predators are doing on the landscape. So my, my thing is go out there and walk in the snow and GPS where those trails are and find where the nodes are. And you've got to realize that the only reason that we put trail cameras out in the woods is to entertain bears. And I can't imagine that brown bears are any different than our black bears down here. <laughs> and so you have to think about where you position them and how high you position them up in the trees. And you might want to take a step ladder with you when you put it up and, uh, and take a look at it and try not to point them towards the sun, try to put them into the shadows so you don't get sun flares there's all kinds of little tricks. There's several uh, Facebook pages and web pages out there that you can go and get some ideas about how to set these things up. But it's a lot of fun to find out what's in your background. You get all, everything. Like I've got several wolf marking trees. Uh, I am now I'm able to identify licking branches uh, that sicka blacktail go to. Uh, they don't make scrapes. So they come and they mouth and rub their their uh, inner antler and their eye uh, scent glands on these branches overhead and urinate down their legs underneath there, these signposts. And you might have a dozen bucks working that same signpost time after time after time after time. And they're pretty much like clockwork coming into those things. Uh, so wolf marking trees, uh, bear marking trees, all of that kind of stuff. It's fun. It's it's just amazing what's out there. And the, the stuff that goes on in our woods that we had no idea of. But of course you're getting you're getting Martin and and birds and all kinds of other stuff. Like muskegs on this island here. It's amazing how many sandhill cranes that I have feeding out in front of my cameras. And the cameras are getting so good and stuff that uh the video quality is just incredible. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. I, I have set out just one camera. I, I had to have it in, I have a, a steel cage, a cage thing that it goes in, which uh, a couple of times the bears have, have rubbed up against it. I don't think maybe and sniffed at it, but um, not, I haven't had any real damage from a, from a bear. <laughs> Mostly I've, I've set it up on what, what uh, I thought were, bear sign trees or uh, uh, like muskeg puddles where they go in and take a swim. I haven't really targeted the, targeted the deer with it yet, but um, 
yeah, it is pretty fascinating. I have caught owls on there before uh, at night. Uh, not so much cranes here, right? In Sitka. I think there are some over on Kruzov Island. But Well, so you mentioned earlier that black-tailed deer, subspecies of mule deer, so mule deer foundation is, you know, in principle, been inclusive of all the mule deers, including the subspecies, the black-tail subspecies. In practice, it's been more focused on mule deer. And I'm mostly familiar with mule deer from a little bit in Southern Idaho, where it seems like they're largely desert deer rather than forest deer. And uh, I may be mistaken about that more generally, but so I was just kind of curious. I, and I, the other thing I understand is the, the black-tail deer tend to be much smaller than, than the mule deer, but are there other sort of differences in lifestyle or uh, life cycle and, and habits and ecology that are, Blacktail specific concerns, I guess that that maybe are different than than mule deer. So on the sickablacktail.org webpage, uh, we've got a bunch of research papers on there, and there's one on there by Emily Latch and Jim Heffelfinger and stuff that gets really to the gist of of how the relationship is between uh, sicka blacktail, Columbia blacktail, and the mule deer, and it's a story basically of glaciation and in the west and so the the cascade range glaciation over multiple glacial advances kind of tended to isolate the mule deer proper from the deer of the coast and so the deer of paraphrasing this the deer of Northern California that are Columbia blacktail are most closely similar to mule deer proper. And then Columbia blacktail, as you get to Oregon and Washington, get more and more and more diverged from what is a typical mule deer. And then the Sitka blacktail are the, the northernmost species that are a subspecies of mule deer are even further removed from that. In fact, uh, there's some suggestion that maybe the Sitka blacktail is closer to whatever the original deer was in the West that, that split off. Uh, we're still trying to define what a Sitka blacktail is. Uh, there was a recent study that I can provide you with an abstract. So we have found bones in caves on Prince of Wales Island and throughout several islands uh, surrounding Prince of Wales, ranging back to about 9,000 years old. That definitely was not the first deer that ever got here, but it's the oldest deer that we have. And we have a, a couple bones from a cultural site out on Hecata Island that date to about 8,200 years old. So that was the first people that we have evidence of using deer as a subsistence food. There's also deer bones in caves on the Queen Charlotte. So the kind of the story that came out of doing genetics on these bones is somewhere about 12,000 years ago, whatever was Columbia blacktail moved on to the Queen Charlotte Islands. Then through habitat changes and maybe cooling temperatures during the Younger Dryas, 
those deer on the Queen Charlottes became extant. They became extinct on there at about 11,700 years ago, give or take a week or two. And sea level rose, and deer never made it back out to the Queen Charlottes until the late 1800s when um, one of the ministers out there bought some deer from Prince Rupert and brought them out and released them. And so the incredible population that it, of Sitka blacktail on the Queen Charlotte Islands that is virtually destroying the undergrowth out there was introduced. So deer disappear off the Queen Charlotte's 11,000 years ago, and then we don't find another fossil deer until like 9,000 years ago on the, on the outer coast of Prince of Wales Island and in a few of the caves. Those deer genetically look like early forms of sick of blacktail that also must have met a mule deer coming along the coast at that time when they were moving up or as they were developing because there's also a little bit of mule deer that shows up in everything that is pre about uh 8,000 years old. So the deer that was originally on Prince of Wales Island was some kind of blacktail hybrid with mule deer. All post like 7,500 year old deer that we have fossils of in the caves that we're able to get radiocarbon dates on and extract DNA information are sick of blacktail. So it's an interesting history on how we got here. There's an interesting kind of a changeover in that population. That's also about the time where we go from probably colder winters and drier summers with maybe half of the precipitation we have today and fire in the ecology till we start developing the Aleutian lows and the, the rainforest wetlands and stuff that we have today at that like 7,000 year break in there. So there's a major change in the habitat from what the early deer occupied on in Southeast Alaska and what the subsequent deer for the last 7,000 years have experienced, the continued wetting of that landscape. And there's been lots of fluctuations of temperatures and glacial, like the Little Ice Age and all these things going on and El Ninos and La Ninos and how they've survived on that landscape. But everything post 7,000 have been sick of blacktail and everything pre 7,000 was somewhat of a little bit of a hybrid uh, that had some mule deer. They, 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 they befriended a mule deer on the way up or the way up. Well, from the sounds of it, then, if I'm understanding correctly, there was a... a... I don't know if pure is the right word, but but a, 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 a less influenced by by mule deer population of blacktails that that ultimately came to dominate now Sitka blacktail southeast Alaska without the without so much uh, without as close a relationship to the mule deer and so those were presumably you know hanging out during the ice age somewhere is a thought further down the coast or. or Somewhere inside, I guess without fossils, it's hard to know where they might have been. Yeah, so we don't know if they were, that doesn't seem like they persisted in any refugia that might now be beneath the waves. 
or we don't have evidence of that. So they must have persisted in glacial refugia south of the ice front, maybe in northern Washington, along the coast of northern Washington. And as the ice pulled back and mule deer of the west, I mean, even today along the I-5 corridor in there, if you go over to the Cascades, we used to hunt them as a, as a, when I was a young man growing up, we'd always go up into the mountains and hunt what we called bench leg blacktail because that was mule deer hybrid with, with our Columbia blacktail. And there were just these incredibly much larger body deer that we, maybe not great big racks, but you know, much larger body deer that we were hunting up in there. So the hybridization and stuff like that could easily have happened as the ice pulled back and you have, Mule deer starting to occupy the, the plains on one side of the coastal mountains. And eventually some of those came over and came down towards the coast as whatever that proto blacktail was, was moving up along the coast at that time, working its way towards becoming what we now know as Sika blacktail. And so there was, there was a deer on the landscape before the glaciation started, what, 2 million or 2 point some 2 billion years ago or something like that out there. And so there's been multiple glaciations to do that isolation. And so there was in North America, there was a proto deer, the glaciation start, the isolation happened towards the coast and the plains. And so the classic mule deer is more of a plains animal. And then, but they had, they had expanded over whatever that proto deer was also over towards the coast at, at that time. And it became isolated and, became blacktails as we know it today. And those blacktails then changed and got more blacktail-like through time as you move north. And it was probably that northern population that started working up along the coast and maybe <clears throat> through isolations with sea level changes and stuff like that created what we eventually we would know as a Sitka blacktail. And I imagine that those sea level changes and that isolation is what created that uh, speciation. Well, and they seem remarkably good at, at making it here in, in this region, their ability to swim between islands. And it seems like they can swim pretty long distances without too much trouble and, uh, and adapt, as you were saying earlier, to predator pressures and, and those sorts of things. And I guess, yeah, the winter being the, the real limiting factor for them, probably including in their northward expansion. And uh, I don't know how far north they go these days. I know they've been introduced out on Kodiak, I think. And Yeah, so there's on our webpage, we have a, a tab on introductions. And it's a pretty fascinating story where they, you know, they were introduced out at Yakutat uh, around some of the islands out of Cordova. And you can see the history of things that took and didn't take. Uh, they were introduced in the 20s out on Kodiak and a couple different introductions out there. Sadly, there hasn't been a, a subsequent introduction to bring more genetic variability out there to Kodiak. So you end up with some of these really weird stag deer and other things out there right now. And there's a kind of a, a genetic bottleneck. So, and the deer have expanded uh, all along uh, Prince William Sound, clear over by Whittier, and there's actually been a few Sitka blacktails seen in the outskirts of Anchorage. Oh, wow. Uh, I don't believe they're going to establish a population. I mean, one of the big threats right now, 
is as the mule deer and especially the whitetail population expands in the Yukon, they're starting to see those deer frequently now in Alaska. And they're afraid that they're going to bring in both ticks and disease into our Alaskan landscape. And so I think right now there's a, a uh, almost shoot on site mandate for those deer. And if you find those in Alaska, that that's uh, an unwanted guest. We're looking at, you know, chronic wasting disease, all of those different deer borne diseases and stuff that we don't have on the landscape here. Um, we have mule deer, classic mule deer in the landscape at uh, Hyder. So they are coming through British Columbia in, what was it, 1991 or two. I actually saw in doing mineral surveys back up by Mount Dolly up uh, Fish Creek uh, by Hyder. I saw a mule deer doe with twins sitting at the old mine tailing of the, I think it was the Trinity mine back up in there or, or what, I can't remember the name of the mine actually. Uh, but I didn't have a camera, but we sit there and looked at her. She was gray, ropey tail, the whole thing. We were in a helicopter and she was got up out of her bed with a set of twins. And there's been a couple other reported up in there. Right now at uh, Skagway and Haynes up there, I believe that they've documented a bunch of mule deer that's moved out into that valley. Uh, so it's not that we don't have those deer naturally in here, but they are definitely from the Yukon expanding into uh, Alaska. Coming from the more continental side of the mountains and yep. dropping down the, the big valleys. Yeah. So we're still working on genetic stuff out here. It's a fascinating story that's kind of just starting to emerge. Uh, working through, uh, actually with Jason Briner back there, the folks that uh, Charlotte Lindquist and her students uh, are doing that paleogenetics of the deer in that story. And it's, it's, a, it's a far more complicated story. And the timing of it is just fascinating on when did deer get here on the landscape. So I know from the caves on Prince of Wales Island, we have, a, I think, a caribou at 10,500 or roughly in there, something like that. So we still had caribou here. And shortly after that, we had deer. So for a short period of time, it's possible that we had both caribou and deer on Prince of Wales Island. Uh, and then the, the caribou disappeared. And of course, on the Queen Charlotte, the caribou persisted until the 20s. They had became a dwarf, a barret species of, of caribou from isolation. And they were finally uh, shot to a non-reproducible population in the 1920s down on the northern Queen Charlotte Island or Ida Gwaii. Wow. Well, I know, so the, you know, we mentioned earlier, you're working with the Mule Deer Foundation, and I know that you were here, I guess it was last fall already, uh, with with somebody from that organization kind of looking to jumpstart a chapter. I don't know, is it just a local Sitka chapter? I mean, the, each community has its own chapter, or is it a regional chapter? I'm not quite sure how that, that works, but um, if folks are interested in in, in getting involved, like what are some ways that they can, they can do that? So it's a local chapter. 
and we're going to hold our first event there on April 23rd at the Elks Lodge in Sitka from, I think it's 6 to 8 o'clock at night. And it'll be a small event and just get people introduced to what's going on. And so, I don't know, I, there's many of us belong to different things from from grouse to elk to antelope to whatever that your passion is for and stuff like that. We frequently belong to conservation organizations that we, we hope are furthering things that we would like to see. And I think the, the Mule Deer Foundation is super dedicated to Blacktail now, and there's an enormous emphasis thing and the partners that they have with Leopold and Nosler. And uh, the fact that the Mule Deer Foundation just signed a 20-year agreement with the Forest Service and the first five years funding is like $65 million to be used across the West. But the Tongass was one of those forests that was an emphasis area. So working with the forest and the forest biologists, like in your town there, Cody, I'm working with Cody. Um, we're going to identify habitat that they would like to see improved winter range habitat is the emphasis so this older second growth that doesn't have any forage in there what can we do is go in and, and do that there's all kinds of different funding levels and stuff out there so not only are you joining a chapter that supports a deer that i think we all have a lot of passion for and whether we like seeing them or like we like hunting them and and harvest them and putting them on our dinner table this is an opportunity to step up and and put a little bit of personal effort towards earning some dollars towards that. And so out of each of these, a certain percentage of those dollars are held uh, for those individual uh, chapters uh, called chapter rewards. We can pull that from all of the chapters in Alaska. So if we have chapters in Anchorage and Wasilla and Fairbanks, they don't have Sitka Blacktail. They can decide to spend that in habitat improvement. Let's say I'm working with Cody right now in the area around Tenneke in Corner Bay, where there's been a lot of past harvest uh, on uh, Chichikoff Island. And so if that's something they'd like to fund, then we can use that as matching funds to go out and find additional uh, funding to do additional acres. And so the, the bottom line is the more dollars we have, the more places we can focus. If we were in the desert southwest, we might be removing fences that are impeding migration and, migra and, and blocking migration corridors. We might be doing guzzlers and those kind of things. We might be masticating underbrush to reduce the fire, but also improve forage. And so there's all kinds of different things going on across the West for these different mule deer species. What we have here is habitat. And our habitat has been reduced as a result of timber harvest. And we can go in with different treatments, uh, both uh, pre-commercial and doing some commercial removal of those trees to open those stands up to allow forage to come back underneath there. And I think we have pretty much unlimited opportunities. It's just where, where can we focus our efforts and the dollars that we have at our disposal to get the biggest bang for the buck. Uh, 
Every analysis for unit two down here shows that we are going to have a continued decline in our deer populations for the next 30 years. Mainly because a combination of predation, but mainly because of habitat and the fact that these harvested landscapes are going to continue to close in and choke out the food that's there for the deer. And so anything that we can do to open those stands back up is where we want to put our focus. And that's what I'd like to get established in a place. I don't know how long I'll ride this horse on, on uh, being the conservation lead in Alaska, but that's right now where my focus is across the landscape. What can we do for these deer on the landscape to make their life better? And being part of a chapter, being a member of the Mule Deer Foundation, uh, this just shows that, that that's just what you're interested in as well. And uh, besides that, it's a lot of fun. It's a, both a social aspect of getting together. And uh, I'm really looking forward to being up at Sitka there at the end of the month and, and meeting with folks. That so I that's met with April 23rd at the room. Elks. I'm sure there'll be some subsequent promotion of that event in, in the coming weeks here as we get a little closer. Yep. There'll be some firearms, some silent auctions, um, um, beverages of your choice, either adult or not, and some food, I believe, that's going to be available. And uh, there'll be more information coming out, both on social media and in posters around town, and I'll do the PSA and stuff like that through the radio stations. And everybody can get the word out themselves. I think a blacktail to me is a, is a incredible iconic species of southeast alaska and we know so much about white-tailed deer there's so much published on white-tailed deer and mule deer and there's not that much on columbia blacktail but there's some and we know so little about these deer that are so such an integral portion of our lives here in southeast alaska and i think this is really a cool opportunity to get some funding to improve the habitat, get some funding to maybe um, support graduate work, uh, to study different aspects of these deer's life in today's landscape. And uh, I just think it's a place that I want to focus my efforts and focus what limited dollars I have where I can put it into some kind of a conservation effort. And, uh, I hope other folks are like-minded and, and will show up out there at, at these uh, events as we start holding these throughout Southeast Alaska. Well, yeah, I look forward, look forward to that. Appreciate your, your time here and look forward to seeing you in, in April. And thanks for joining me here. Awesome. Thanks, Matt. I appreciate it. You've been listening to a conversation I recorded with Jim Bastel this past week. I want to thank him for taking some time to visit with me, and thank you for joining me here on the Sitka Nature Show this week. As always, I'd love to hear what you're seeing out there. Please feel free to send me an email, sitkanature at gmail.com, or get on Facebook and like the Sitka Nature page there. Until next time, this has been Matt on the Sitka Nature Show, KCAW Sitka.